Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 32 of X Lapsed, where we are covering one of the Betsy books here. This is Excalibur number four, and it had a February 2020 cover date. We'll uh, we'll hop right in. I don't have anything to complain about today. The weather is, uh, well, it's still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's not, I don't know. I haven't been outside as much, so it's not bothering me quite as much as it was uh, the other day. Uh, this one is called Verse 4, Fall Back and Think of England. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Marcus Toe. Colors by Eric Arshaniga. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Uh, Corey Petit's been pretty busy over the past few uh, <laughs> few episodes. Uh, designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Beast So White Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now, before we hop into the book, let's, uh, let's look at the cover. Uh, I mentioned this last episode. When I first took, you know... Actually took stock of the cover and didn't just, you know, file it. Um, I assumed that this featured Betsy fighting that baby Shogo dragon that we ran into uh, last issue. Thankfully, that doesn't quite turn out to be what happens here. But unfortunately, it kind of feels like they might have used the cover for the wrong issue. But uh, we'll get there. Um, And I mean, that's not even like... That really even matters anymore, right? What what good are covers in current year anyway, huh? As long as it's a... It alludes to something, I guess, right? Anyway, we open it up. And we see Gambit having a one-sided chat with the comatose rogue atop that Krakoan lighthouse. He tells her that he's got just got some business left to do with Betsy. Back, uh, he's got to attend to it in London, and then he's done. Then he's going to devote all of his time to shaking Rogue out of this spell. We follow Gambit all the way to the gates of Buckingham Palace, where there are some raucous anti-mutant ralliers there, uh, rallying, as they do. Now, this is the first scene of the issue where I feel like maybe the art isn't quite up to the standards we expect from uh, from this crea- this art team, right? Uh, we have a bystander hurling a bottle at Gambit, and Gambit, as quick as a cat, he catches it, charges it, and throws it back. But this whole action looks very, very wooden. Uh, zero feeling of movement. Uh, everything felt very, very static. Um, lifeless. Uh, no emotion. It was just kind of just there. Uh, just didn't really work for me. Now, while on that subject, I know anti-mutant rallies are something to expect when reading an X-Men book, and it makes complete in-story sense for us to be seeing them. But I'm kind of having that, you know, hail on a tin roof sort of reaction to them here. Uh, I feel like there's just too much of it. Um, I get that they're there. I get, you know, that it makes total sense. It's just kind of tiresome. 
Uh, one good thing about this page that I will give it is that uh, when Gambit sees the crowd, he greets them with a "Hey," which, you know, made me peek around the panel for Apocalypse, uh, which makes absolutely no sense to anyone except for listeners of this show. Okay, anyway, how about we get to three pages without comics on them? Let's do it. First, we got our roll call. Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Betsy Britton, Pete Wisdom, Apocalypse, Megan, Jamie Braddock, and Mariana Stern. Then we got two pages of credits. Then we got comics again. We hop inside the palace where we see Jubilee having a chat with Richter. They talk about something here that's always kind of boggled my mind. And uh, really the reason why I tend not to be specific when discussing anything having to do with England, Great Britain, or the United Kingdom... Because, to be completely honest, I'm not a very worldly guy, and I don't know when or how to apply any of those words. <laughs> it's uh, always eluded me. I just never figured out what goes where and how. Um, Jubilee and Julio, how unfortunately, they really don't help my worldly education any here. It's, uh, it's just as uh, confusing <laughs> after their chat. Um, now, Richter, he says... It looks like he's already been fixed, right? Uh, last issue, he couldn't leave his apartment for fear of, you know, shaking the world around him. Uh, he really can't explain uh, why or how this is. All he says is that uh, he listened to him, and I guess that was enough. He suggests, even though he doesn't really like the big blue guy, that maybe Gambit ought to consider bending his ear as well. And uh, this bit of the conversation gets interrupted by an explosion outside, and I'm going to put money on it being Gambit's charged bottle, because of course it is. Now this results in Gambit, Jubilee, and Richter fighting off the anti-mutant protesters, which, I don't know, I mean, I know we've got Krakoan diplomatic immunity or whatever it is, but wouldn't an explosion outside the gates of Buckingham Palace be terrorism? Or at least considered an act of terrorism? Like, Like, shouldn't there be, like, military and police just swarming the place? I mean, there might be an officer or two here, but it's mostly just our heroes fighting civilians. Um, really weird. Uh, the brouhaha is broken up by the arrival of Betsy Britton and Pete Wisdom, fresh off a of chatting up the Queen. They're swarmed by the media. So, uh, were, were these reporters and whatnot involved in the riot we just saw? I don't know. Betsy joins her crew, reveals that they are now accountable to the Queen tells them that she had to fill out a bunch of Captain Brittany paperwork and then officially christens her team Excalibur. Then, an info page. A boring info page that uses the word otherworld about about 50 times. Um, Back to comics and back to the lighthouse, our team discusses their next move. Now, Gambit, he naturally wants to save Rogue. He really doesn't care about anything else. A agrees with Gambit, if you recall... He needed Rogue for something way back in the first issue, so he's pretty keen on, you know, shaking her out of her stasis. Betsy, however, has a more pressing engagement to attend to. She's got to meet up with the meanest PTA mom there is, the dread Mariana Stern. And she's got some coven crap to attend to, which I don't care about. But at least we're not in other world. Uh, Pete Wisdom says he'll be accompanying her, so at least the scene will probably have a twinge of aloofness to it. He claims that he now has need of Gambit and Richter to procure some items secreted into the ground, and uh, we'll get there. But first, let's head back to Krakoa with Jubilee and Shogo. Upon popping through the portal, she runs into Megan and the, and the Braddock brat. Megan who... I'll just say it. Uh, the faces we're getting this issue... 
I said the art's a little bit iffy. These just aren't up to the usual standard of Marcus Toe work. Uh, the faces are weird. Um, that applies to most of our characters, but Megan especially? Like, it almost looks as though her face, like, melted a little bit and slid down her head and gathered near her chin. It's very, very off-putting. Anywho, she and Jubilee talk for a bit, and we learn that Megan and little Margaret will be staying on Krakoa until Brian returns from Otherworld. Jubilee is certain that it, you know, won't be a long wait. Uh, we also learn that the anti-mutant protesters rallied outside the Braddock Academy, and they're really, really upset that their Captain Britain is now a mutant. And part of me wonders if this is like a nebulous commentary on politics. Probably. Uh, this chat is interrupted by our resident pervert, Jamie Braddock, who is looking rather Vartoxian, lounged up, lounged out, wearing nothing but a loincloth and a mustache. Jubilee punches him in the face for being a jackass, which, I don't know, seems like maybe something Jamie would usually pay women to do. From here, we go to an info page. It's the Braddock family tree. And this feels wildly unnecessary. The only thing worth noting here is that Elizabeth Braddock, that's Betsy, Brian, and Jamie's mother, she's got a branch on this tree that leads to nobody. It just kind of fades out. We don't know who or what she sprung from. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, or maybe it just doesn't matter, which is why they didn't include it, but I don't think they'd include the partial line if it didn't matter. So I guess we'll find out, or maybe we won't. Now, we've reached the staples of the issue. And uh, things are about to get a wee bit sloggy. We join Gambit and Richter as they're digging through the underground below the moorlands. They're looking for crystals per A's instruction. Gambit wonders why A needed a thief if they're just going to be taking some stuff that they find underground. It's not like uh, they're taking something that you know belongs to someone else, right? Now, did somebody just roll an 18? Because uh, enter the druids. We've got the uh, worst dungeon master ever here. Richter continues blasting his way down, and they come to a clearing which is full of bones and crystals, and also druids. Richter peruses some crystals that are dull blue in color. Gambit, assuming this is what they need, he, he pockets them. Then, more rumbling, but none of it from Richter himself. It's the druids, and the druids greet Richter as one of their own, because he's one with the ability to wield the earth from birth. He's neither human nor fey. Richter tries to convince them that they're all on the same side. They all have a dislike of Coven Akaba and whatnot, even though the druids don't appear to have come in anything but peace. I mean, they approach Richter and they start dressing him in their in their clothes. You know, they they put this like weird face paint on him. They cover him in a cloak. It, it's like they accept him as one of their own. They then hand our man some glowing pink crystals since. The bl dull blue ones were just left out as decoys. Now, the druid boss, I think, he then turns his attention to Gambit, who he just refers to as a thief, and a thief must be banished. Gambit is pushed off the edge of an underground cliff and is just, you know, holding on for dear life. Richter goes to help him, but then the earth begins to quiver. Old Julio appears to be losing control of his powers again. Well, just as Julio loses his control, Gambit loses his grip and plummets into the Great Unknown. We then shift scenes to the meeting house of Coven Acaba, the Valiente Room. Now, Betsy and Peter meeting with the dread Mariana Stern and a rather hirsute gentleman named Reuben. Now, Reuben. <laughs> Reuben's a pretty glib fella. He's got this, like, weird passive-aggressive way about him that really seems to get under Betsy Britton's skin. 
He refers to humility as something far more powerful than any mutant-born ability. Pete Wisdom acts, well, aloof, and he sips his drink. Now, Betsy asks these two why they chose the name Akaba, which only sends old Reuben into another passive-aggressive screed. He talks about how many mutants were probably killed on Akaba before one was born powerful enough to actually do anything about it. This ticks Betsy off, and she gets in the man's face, almost proving his point about humility. Even Pete Wisdom tries to get her to settle her tea kettle here. Now, Betsy rails on about having the full support of the crown and how the queen actually defers to her own judgment. Reuben, he just sits back. It's like he's given Betsy all the rope in the world to hang herself here. Betsy accuses the coven of being a trap, to which Reuben corrects her. They're not so much a trap as they are a distraction. Now, you see, Otherworld, Otherworld, ugh, is a fragile place, right? And Betsy Britton and company soaring out of it on a fire-breathing dragon kind of damaged the very fabric of the place, which allowed for some otherworldly beasts to break out into the real world. And so we see some giant medieval-looking horrors at various points of interest in the area, including a multi-headed hydra chilling out at Stonehenge. So Reuben gives, gives Betsy a look and is all, is all like, smooth move, X-Lax, which uh, causes her to run out the door. We wrap up atop the lighthouse where A.E. is chatting to the comatose rogue about the weird otherworldly beasties that have just arrived on their shores. He alludes to the fact that uh, they're ready for this because, uh, well, they've been waiting for it to happen. Just then, in our final panel, Rogue wakes up. And that is Excalibur number four. The next book we'll be taking a look at is New Mutants number four, which, at this point, I'm guessing maybe it'll feature like a trip to the supermarket with skin or something. Maybe we'll go to the DMV with uh, with Psyche or Sink, whatever the hell his name is. I, you just never know what to expect from New Mutants. You know, you expect the Shi'ar and you get something else. So I'm not even going to hazard a guess as to what this issue will be. But before we get there, let's talk about what we just read. So this was probably, no, definitely the strongest issue of Excalibur yet. Uh, we had limited Otherworld stuff, and a fair amount of opportunity to catch up with our cast. I mean, I could do without the druids and whatnot, but other than other than them showing up, I, I really dug this. Um, I really like this Reuben fellow. Uh, he seems like such a jerk, and just the very, the, like the very picture of the person you'd never want to be in a debate with. Uh, we have him here, and he kind of plays Betsy like a fiddle, right? It's all very well done. Very, you know, slow burn, letting her just percolate and just lose her stuff. Seeing him hanging out with Mariana friggin' Stern gave me this knee-jerk, I-could-give-a-crap feeling towards him, but it didn't take him long to win me over. His, uh, you know, sort of kind of passive-aggressive, smarmy dialogue was really cool. Uh, definitely the sort of a-hole who could find his way getting under just about anybody's skin. I was also pleased that this scene, in particular, didn't turn into Pete Wisdom being the smartest dude in the room. I feel like that's uh, how a lot of Pete Wisdom scenes go, almost making him like a poor man's John Constantine, which I guess he sort of kind of is in a way. <laughs> um, Gambit and Richter in the underground. Eh, not my favorite sort of thing. Uh, as I've said before, and I probably will again, the druids do nothing for me. Um, being positive, it is interesting seeing Gambit head into a mission at the behest of Apocalypse, however. I, I guess he'll pretty much trust anybody if it means we'll get the, you know, even the slightest possibility of saving Rogue, so that's cool enough. 
Uh, keeping it with Gambit here, that scene in front of Buckingham Palace, pretty baffling. Um, you'd almost expect for there to be some sort of consequence for their behavior, but it got brushed away pretty quickly. Uh, I mentioned it a couple times during the synopsis, the art. Maybe it's just me, but it doesn't feel like it's up to the level of quality we've come to expect from Marcus Toe. Uh, it looks a bit rushed, though I'm probably not the best to judge for that sort of thing. It just... It just looked a step off, is all. It's still, you know, very good, but it's just not what not what we're used to. Uh, the ending with the dragons and beasts coming through Otherworld, uh, or coming through from Otherworld, that only reminds me that, you know, hey, we're not done with Otherworld just yet. <laughs> I was hoping, with uh, Betsy and Morgan Le Fay saying, you know, see ya, I was hoping we were done for a little while, but it looks like we're not. So despite the fact that I mostly enjoyed this issue, I mean, we still got that uh, that otherworldly specter looming overhead. Um, I do look forward to Otherworld being firmly in our rear view, and of course that is assuming that there'll ever be a day like that. Uh, overall, though, really dug this issue. Unfortunately, I can't say as I'm looking forward to what's to come, because it looks like just more Otherworld and, uh, and more Druids, so... I guess we'll uh, we'll take it as it comes, right? Now, before I let you guys go, we got a little bit of mailbag dipping to do, and uh, first we will uh, we will start with Damien, and this is regarding X Force number three. He says, "I have to start by complimenting the cover of this issue. Gene looks so cool, and yes, X Force number three has a really really awesome cover that just leaps off the racks at you." Um, it's, you know, Gene and a Cerebro helmet, but it's got, like, this, like, weird psychedelic mod sort of coloring to it. it. It's really, really cool. It might be the best cover I've seen since the Dawn of X hit. It's just so striking. and just It's just real beautiful to look at. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I was interested to hear you say that the Professor was resurrected quickly. This really stuck with me as I read X of Tens Part 2 yesterday, and one of the plot points was that the resurrections usually take a long time. This is not the impression given here. The only thing that delayed this resurrection was Gene working out how to operate Cerebro. I feel more and more like we're being expected to have picked up plot points that were left out of the books. And yes, pretty quick resurrection, and I haven't read any of the X of Ten stuff yet. Um, and uh, I won't probably until, I don't know, at this rate, December or January. Um... But part of me wonders if uh, there's going to be like a reveal that there are like always extra Professor X bodies cooking, you know? I mean, we already know that Proteus gets a new Xavier host body every week or so. So maybe that hastened his, this particular resurrection process. That is, of course, just like my head cannon, You know, the, the, the hamster running on the wheel in my head trying to make sense of it or reconcile the quickness if... Uh, if we are hearing that this is a you know lab- laborious process uh, for the resurrections, because um, I mean we don't know about the like the time frame from the Orcus mission to you know Cyclops and the uh, the other seven or six coming back, we don't know the time frame on that really. I unless it was unless I you know I am a dense guy, so I, maybe I missed it. But back to Damien's message. He says, the Beast and Gene conversation about death was a weird one. You reacted as though visiting graveyards is unusual. Here in the UK, it's not uncommon for people to visit graveyards or cemeteries for a day out, and a lot of the bigger ones have picnic areas and cafes. They're often seen as just a shared public space. I know when my mom would take me and my sister to graveyards, she would occupy us with looking for the longest-lived person, the youngest-lived person, and for unusual names. 
Looking back, it's blatantly obvious that she was just getting us to practice our reading and arithmetic. It was all about education with my mom. I wouldn't say spending time in graveyards makes you unafraid of death, though, or that being unafraid makes you more heroic. Surely, true heroism requires some element of personal risk, and that's totally interesting. I've, I've never visited a graveyard outside of, uh, you know, going to pay respects. Um, so I guess, I guess that this show is making me uh, more worldly, you know, by the episode here, via osmosis. <laughs> I'm, I'm being educated vicariously through uh, everyone else's experiences. That's, uh, that's very interesting, though. And it does make a lot of sense as, um, as practice for math and practice for reading. That makes a ton of sense. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe just being in Arizona, it's too hot to be outside most of the year. So we don't really do that sort of thing. I mean, but even back in New York, we didn't do that sort of thing. At least, I, I guess I was younger. Maybe it is, you know, common practice here, too. Maybe other folks will reach out and let me know. Um, Back to Damien, he says, As for your question about deaths, I think Hank is about the only character on this team who hasn't died and been resurrected, so was the only person who Gene could have that conversation with. Such a weird choice, and I hadn't thought about that. Now, Beast might actually be like the only legacy Marvel character who hasn't been killed off a handful of times. That's that's a really good point that I hadn't considered. Because, I mean, all the rest of the original five... Has Iceman died? He probably has. (laughs) It's so sad we can say that, right? Our, you know, growing up in the 90s, um, discovering the X-Men in the 90s, it was like you knew the handful of X-Men that died because like, they would get a trading card that like said that they died, and there would be like five of them. Now it's like you could have five trading cards of X-Men who haven't died, and you might have to put Beast on all five of them for all I know. Um Damien continues, you're definitely right that these deep conversations are very forced and inorganic. It feeds into the idea that Krakoa is altering the character somehow. In some ways, you have to admire Hickman for setting up the idea that everything is being manipulated by Mora because it means when I read bad dialogue, I wonder if it's a sign that Jean was altered in her post-Orcus resurrection. He's given the creators a perfect excuse for bad writing. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, I, I, you know, I wonder if that's the case. <laughs> It's, it's all Krakoa's fault that our characters are all engaging in these wildly unsubtle and awful discussions in X-Force. It's, it's definitely food for thought, though. Um, I mean, having a puppet master in the background is certainly one way of lampshading things like eccentricities and out-of-character uh, conversations and, and just out-of-character behaviors. Um, definitely, you know, if that shoe was ever to drop, it would just make everything hunky-dory, right? Uh, everything would make perfect sense because it's, you know, Beast isn't a jerk, he's just being, you know, manipulated. Or Jean isn't being overly flowery and poetic, she's just, you know, this is just uh, the way things are here. Um, Damien wraps up, he says, I don't know if I said it in my recent comments, but I just wanted to thank you again for the amount of work you're putting into this series. It's really enjoyable to be a part of it, and well, thank you. I'm beyond happy that you are a part of it as well. Um, it really means a lot. I always look forward to your messages, and I, and I really enjoy uh, getting the opportunity to respond to them here. Um, I know it might sound, you know, glib when I say I'm learning things from uh, from these letters, but I actually am. You know, I'm actually the takeaways that I'm getting here are helping to make this entire endeavor uh, better, more well-rounded. You know, I'm I'm being able to see. I'm being able to experience this through so many different points of view, and it's just wonderful. It's a real treat, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. Um, 
this is, I mean, I, what I say about a lot of my work is it doesn't look like much, but it takes a lot of time. And, uh, I mean, the show might not sound like much, but yeah, it does take some time. Um, I, I think I've mentioned this earlier, but I mean, I'm setting an alarm to wake up before it gets light out so I can work on my show notes before the day, you know, really starts and, you know, things like work, school and, and, you know, family and all sorts of stuff, you know, start to, start to occupy my time. So it's a, it it is an investment in time, but, uh, but I feel like I'm, I'm getting as much out of it as I'm putting into it, which is a pretty good place to be. So, uh, thank you again for your message and thank you for always being there. It's, it really means a lot to me. Uh, next, we have a message from Al Sedano, and this is regarding House of X number three. Now, he's, you know, he's early on in the series here, which I love, because I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. It's it's letting me see how someone else is getting, is learning about the Hoxpox stuff here. It's It's putting me on the other side of the fence here, where I know the stuff that happened in it, and I'm getting to see how someone else is experiencing it and reacting to it. So it's really cool. Um, Al says, so it's once again time for me to send you my thoughts. This time it's episode six on House of X number three. First of all, I hope I'm not one of the people giving you clapback about your opinions on the text or info pages. You have yours and I have mine, but it's just opinions. And no, no, no. Uh, this is, uh, when I was talking about that, that was just during like the real time release of these episodes. Um, because the feedback I'd received on the info pages was pretty split. Uh, surprisingly split even. I kind of assumed... You know, Jonathan Hickman, he's, he's, a, he's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. He's very well respected by um, the comics community online and off. So I kind of assumed I'd be like the lone man on an island, like daring to say anything negative about, you know, this this artistic or, or literary choice of how to, how to give information, how to share information. But I was shocked that it was pretty evenly split. Um, and, and like I said then and now... If I were reading this as a collected edition, or maybe even just reading one issue every couple of weeks as they were released, I doubt I'd even realize that there were so many of them, you know? I think the, 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 the pace and frequency in which I'm reading them, I'm reading an issue a day, you know? And then I'm writing a 20 page document about each issue. So things like info pages really, really stand out to me going at this pace. And I think it makes it a little bit more apparent um, because I'm trying to not only receive the information, but then again, share it, you know, with with folks who may not have read this yet, maybe curious about reading it, or maybe folks who haven't read it, you know, in a year, or maybe people who are reading along. So I think the fact that uh, I'm doing it at the pace I'm doing it is making, you know, I, I said the thing where it's hail on a tin roof, you know, I feel like sometimes the info pages can be a bit of a bombardment, you know, just a lot of it. Um, back to Al, he says, now regarding your questions, exactly who is under the Cerebro helmet? I'm right there with you. Is it Xavier? And if it is, what version of him is it? There have been a few. And, uh, <laughs> This was during a point in my Hoxpox discussion where I was, I was making hot takes like like an idiot. <laughs> I was going completely off the rails trying to trying to like be right. You know, um, I took quite a few stabs in the dark on who I thought might be revealed as being under the Cerebro helmet. You know, I was thinking, you know, 
we were never getting a good look at Xavier's face. So it's like, well, why are they hiding his face? What, you know, could it be someone else? And I really thought I was onto something when I guessed it might be like some sort of a sinister, a Mr. Sinister sort of a, uh, you know, schema or whatever. But nope, wasn't him. <laughs> you know, at least as far as we know at this point, it, it was purely Xavier. So, yeah, that was a, that was a fun that was a fun conversation to have with myself, trying to trying to outsmart myself, and only wound up thinking too hard about stuff that uh, never happened. Uh, Al continues going back to the text pages on the bottom of the Project Achilles page. It says there are currently three mutants there. So if one of them is Sabretooth, who are the other two? Now Project Achilles is, if I'm remembering right, that high that high security prison where we saw Sabretooth on trial. And you know, I don't think. That's been revealed yet uh, Though I very well might be mistaken I might have missed it But I don't think they've uh, revealed uh, At least at this point that Who the other two were uh, We knew Sabretooth was there because he was on trial But couldn't say who the other ones are um, Al wraps up by saying Finally, I've been thinking about doing a Marvel Hickman reread too Including his S.H.I.E.L.D. series and Secret Warriors And you know if I could somehow manifest a mutant power to add about six more hours to every day, I'd give some serious consideration to doing a Hickman Fantastic Four show. Now, I've talked about before how I kind of poisoned my own well when it came to his Fantastic Four run, because I, I'm i a little touched. <laughs> I'm a little touched in the head, and uh, I had it in my head that this his run on Fantastic Four was leading to a reboot. So I was like in this constant fear that we were building to like a new 52 style reboot. And as such, I didn't allow myself to enjoy it because I was too busy projecting my concerns about the future onto it. I think it'd be interesting to give that another look now that we're so far removed from it. I don't know, maybe maybe if somewhere down the line I ever get the urge to reopen the Patreon or something, I'll do something with it. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't figured out how to cram those extra hours into the day, but definitely something I'd love to uh, revisit. Unfortunately, being a somewhat prolific uh, content creator, it's hard to read things for fun anymore without, you know, making the multitaskers and actually using them as content. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But thank you so much for your thoughts, Al. I... I, I always look forward to them, especially, you know, since you are coming coming at it from, uh, you know, you're still in Hoxbox and you're still learning all these things. And I, I can't wait until you get up to uh, part nine. That's going to be that's going to be a fun email that I'm looking forward to reading for sure. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a tweet from Baby Skeletor at Skeletor Baby. He says, a long weekend of listening to me talk X-Men comics, playing retro video games, reading evil Ernie back issues with thrash metal serving as soundtracks. Time well spent. And that's awesome. Um, I've mentioned before, uh, anytime someone reaches out and tells me that they've binged on something that I've been a part of has been uh, humbling and just amazing. Uh, I love it. I love hearing that. It's just... Uh, it. it it fills me with uh, a little bit of guilt <laughs> because I'm occupying so much of someone's time, but at the same time, it's just it's just awesome. You know, it's awesome to think about that. Uh, you know, that I'm, my my voice is in someone's head. That's that's awesome. And uh, Baby Skeletor here, uh, I, I thanked him, and uh, and they're actually talking about listening to a different X Men show. This is from Claremont to Claremont, an X Men podcast, which. 
A, I absolutely appreciate anyone listening to that show because that is truly a labor of love with emphasis on the labor. (laughs) And B, it isn't a show I promote nearly as much as maybe I ought to, considering how much work goes into it. Uh, From Claremont to Claremont is a program, for those that don't know, because I really don't talk about it all that much. It's an every-now-and-again program on this channel where me and a group of my friends discuss an entire month's worth of X-Men books, starting with those cover-dated October 1991. Now, October 1991, that's the cover month where X-Men Volume 2, Number 1, hit the stands. So that's where we started, and uh, the goal is to work our way through the, you know, the in-between Claremont's run. You know, the the Lobdell, the Nisiesa, everything from, you know, X-Men... Volume 2, even though the first three issues of that do include Claremont work, we wanted to cover that just as completionists. But, uh, and the, the show is broken up into segments. And there are segments for every single X book of the month. So we have X Men Volume 2, Uncanny X Men, X Factor, X Force, Excalibur, Wolverine, Alpha Flight, Marvel Comics Presents, and all the X happenings in Wizard Magazine. And, uh, you know, we go through the issues and, and talk about them. It's, you know, a comics podcast. It's kind of what you do. And these shows take me uh, about... They take me well over 100 hours to put together. Because uh, th- these are long episodes. Um, there are only two episodes up at this point. They were supposed to be monthly, but uh, I kind of lost my passion for it after, after Reggie passed away this spring. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was read a comic book, um, because I had associated so much of my comics fandom with what Reggie and I did together, and, uh, so I just kind of stopped, you know, um, but I I have been slowly but surely putting together the third episode over the course of the past few months, um, and as I mentioned, the episodes aren't very long. The first episode is around 10 hours long, the second is closer to 13 hours long, the third, uh, it's probably about two-thirds of the way done, and it's probably, I think it's sitting at around nine hours or so, so by the time all said and done, it'll probably be closer to 13 to 15 hours, so it's going to be another long one. I, I hope to have it done, I hope to have it done before Thanksgiving. Um, I know folks are getting busy again, because uh, the world is starting to sort of kind of reopen, so uh, time is a premium for everybody, and I understand that, and uh and to be honest, I've drugged my feet on it so long. It's a, uh, it's, it, but it it is still a priority. It is still something I'd like to do. So, you know, we're still pointed forward on that. So hopefully soon enough, episode three will come out. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Baby Skeletor, for uh, for listening and for reaching out. Um, it really means a lot. It really does mean a lot. Um, that show, that sh- like I said, it's a big, huge time investment and. Uh, to be completely honest, I, I kind of walked away from the first two issues a little bit disappointed um, because I, I I thought it would be more warmly received or at least more widely received, and uh, it was not. <laughs> you know, this was not a uh, "if you build it, they will come" thing. It's a uh, "if you build it, it'll be there" is, is sort of uh, is sort of the way it goes. But uh, it means the world to me that you listen to it. Um, it is a very long show. But I think that's where we'll put a pin on it for today. Uh, Next up, we will be discussing New Mutants, and we'll see what happens either on, you know, Beak's Farm, Shayar Space, or maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe Husk will file her nails for 23 pages. We'll see how it goes. But, uh, 
you know, if you need to get, if you need to, if you want to get a hold of me, because nobody needs to get a hold of me, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes at Chris's on uh, I also just put up a text review. Uh, for a weird X-Men book. This is a book that, uh, for a long, longest time, I thought was an urban legend. This is the Uncanny X-Men visit the, the was it the State Fair of Texas, and uh, it was a book that haunted me because it would always show up in the Wizard Price Guide, and I could never find it, and I could never find anyone who would ever claim to have seen it. So uh, I finally found it about a year ago, and I've been looking for just an opportunity to put it out there, and I decided today, why not? Let's just do it. So, if you're interested in seeing the X-Men visit the uh, Texas State Fair and fight Magneto and see a a new mutant who only appears once, um, it's there. (laughs) It's there for you at chrisisoninfinitearths.com. There's also the X-Lapsed page, xlapsed.chrisisoninfinitearths.com. We're on Facebook at 90s X-Men. We're on Tumblr at xlapsed, I guess. Um, and there's also the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com where there's tons of stuff to listen to with much more to come. But I think that's where I'll leave it. One more giant thank you for spending your time with me, sharing your time with me, and just being there with me. <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. Uh, now, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Different